This is exactly right. Okay, well then, <laughs> then maybe we should start this very special episode. This is the most special episode. Welcome to, to my, my favorite, favorite murder, murder, the podcast where we go to a studio that we never go to and record there where it feels really weird to and record. professional. Mm-hmm. And there's no cats. Uh, we're wearing headphones, yeah. which is odd. Yeah. Well, here uh, we are. Um, but we have special guests. Yeah, we have special guests today. Plural. When have we had guests? Not a lot. I think Guy Branham's been a guest. Uh huh. And that's it. And right? that's and our guest today has been a guest, which is about to happen now. Now it is, ladies and gentlemen. Please <laughs> welcome Mr. Billy Johnson. Hello, ladies. How you doing? And hello, all you murderinos out there. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for being here. This is. A special episode. This is a special episode, <laughs> and you guys are definitely still jet lag. <laughs> it's special because it's the first one we're recording back from uh, our European 2018 European tour. That's right. Which was very exciting. Oh, the choir's here. <laughs> Hold on a second. Yeah. Hang on. Can close that yeah, door. Yeah. Oh. We left the back door open. That's how much we're not used to recording yeah. in the studio. Doors are open. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. So... We're back from Europe. Back from Europe. We have jet lag. We have jet lag. Georgia has a cold. I'm cold. Um, I'm going to repeat everything you say. But the, but, the, but the fun part is, this is, we finally get to do the episode where we, like, recap and go back over the Golden State Killer case arrest, and um, and then we have a very special call-in uh, guest. Yeah. Surprise, right? Yeah. We keep you in a surprise. It's a surprise. Yeah, it's a okay. surprise. We'll okay. keep a surprise. Oh, okay. I'm, I might. I might. When we introduce him, I'll. I'll... Oh, I already said it was a him. Oh, man. oh, oh shit! You know, oh, sorry. Now they all know it's Paul Holes. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it to be Carol Daly. God damn it! Where's Erica Hutchcraft? When you need? <laughs> all right. Um, so, well, Billy, what? Yeah. Uh, since this is your show, what um, would you? What is the foremost kind of update piece of information of this case since I guess since the press conferences when we last talked to you there's not one thing is that this guy really didn't have a lot of friends he was not you know and what I did is it was so strange when it, that as soon as it happened and you guys are some of the first that I was talking to uh, when it was happening when I found out at one o'clock in the morning in, in, the, in the bed in Chicago <laughs> a flip switched in my head and it was all about Okay. Every, everything went away. Everything about the the homework uh, evidence and mm-hmm. the you know his shoe patterns and and all that that all went away. And it was all about build a timeline. And it was all about what other crimes has he done. So I've been reaching out and trying to find anybody that might know this guy to build a timeline of where he's been and then also what other crimes that he's been uh, that he could be involved with. And you know, there's not a lot uh, of people that were friendly with him. We already we know from the people in Exeter that he was kind of. Um, he very much kept to himself on the police force. Everybody would joke around, pal around, and he was kind of like very serious, very serious. And, uh, you know, we're trying to track down his Navy people, obviously, Ken, you know, Ken and all the people in the um, in the uh, the SAC police department, they're trying to track down all these people. One of the things that I've been doing just via Twitter and via a couple of Facebook pages that I had launched when the book started is having anybody reach out to me. Before it happened, 
before he was caught, I had two people reach out to me and say that they were actually, they encountered him at one point. And one woman said that he broke into her house. It was right around the same time period. He saw that she was there and and heard that there was somebody else in there. And he decided not to do anything because it sounded like he didn't realize somebody was in the house. And he just said to her, you really need to fix your screen door and then walk and walked out. So I had that information. I said, well, can I give that to the police? Because did you file a police report? She said, yes, I did. I was like, well, there might be something in that police report because we had none of it. Me and Paul Haynes looked in in Michelle's um, uh, hard drive. We had none of that. So we said, well, maybe they don't know about it either. Maybe it just slid under the radar. Maybe there might be something in there that, oh, a neighbor saw this kind of car and then it could lead to something. So that was like three weeks before he was caught. And it had nothing to do with it because we all know uh, what happened. But since I got – I've gotten a couple of uh, tweets at me and I've talked to people and, and, and interviewed them and realized that this guy very well might have attacked people before he started. Wait, everyone is kind of like, there's no way he started at no. what, 30 years old, no. right? Yeah. And he, you know, it's a very easy narrative and it's a very convenient narrative to say, okay, he started as the ransacker. He probably started as a peeper. Then he started going into people's houses and ransacking. Then he decided to go on and uh, rape, rape people inside the houses, then rape a person with a couple and then ended up killing. That that makes sense to people because there's that escalation. But what if he was attacking people before that? A guy texted me and we got into this conversation. I talk to him every day now and his mother was attacked on the street. She was hitchhiking. Her mother was attacked on the street and he showed her, you know, he was, she was raped and it was a, a, a possible murder. It was an attempted murder. He actually drove over her with his car. <gasps> wow. Wait, sorry, was this in Visalia? No, this wasn't in Visalia. But this was in, I don't want to exactly say where it oh, was, it. but it was in a town that he's been in. Okay. And it was before everything had happened that we knew about, but it was around the time of the, of the ransackers, actually. It was actually right before it. And... Um, she had never seen, uh, they never solved it. They never had any, you know, they had one suspect, but he didn't pan out her. She's had tons of surgeries, you know, it's really affected her. And she, he showed her the, um, the picture and she started to shake (gasps) and she really thinks that she had a hundred percent ID on this guy. Wow. Now, that could be it. I don't want to mention any names or names or anything like that. So, you know, I hooked him up with the DA. I, don't, I want to, whether it was him or not, I just want, I want to get this guy justice because it was a horrible story. Yeah. And I'm going to get it out there. And if it wasn't him, it, it was obviously somebody else. And we're going to try and, and work on that. Whether they kept the rape kit is the question. Because we know that Sacramento threw away the rape kits. Thank God for Paul and Contra Costa that they kept those rape kits. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because they used to just throw stuff away because the statute of limitations was up. So I've been thinking a lot about the statute of limitations from this case. Yeah. These all these cases and the and them throwing the rape kits away because of the statute of limitations and how now we're all testing these old backlog rape kits. And you know everyone wants to fucking strangle the statute of limitations. I wonder if there's someone out there, there's some way we can make it so that if you hadn't tested it before the statute of limitations was up, you know, it can be extended somehow because it's not on you that your fucking rape kit wasn't tested and run through the system. Yeah. Like the the normal rules shouldn't apply because the normal rules didn't apply. Right. Because the due diligence wasn't done. Yeah. 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 I mean, the fact that 
we we now know that now that the floodgates are open, and we've been screaming from the rooftops that we should be doing familial DNA and doing it this way right. for a while, which we'll get into. But the fact that that there's still rape kits that haven't been tested, and now that they've been tested and the profiles have been made, but are, what are they doing with those profiles, and where are they putting right. them? And it's such it's the biggest travesty for me in American justice system is that you know the trauma that somebody goes through from a, a sexual assault and then the trauma that you have to go through for actually telling somebody and yeah. then on top of that going through the exam and then having somebody just put it in a locker for years and years yeah not only that and that person's justice but it's the next person's justice right. it's the next woman or the next male's justice so you know the Every one of those rape kits should be running through Familio right now, in my opinion. And also for the other reason, we actually just talked about this in some city we were in on mm-hmm. on the tour, because it also is keeping free somebody who should not be free. That's it's yeah. the 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 justice should be executed on that rapist because that's that idea that this well this happened, but you know it's not a priority or it doesn't matter that mm-hmm. much. Where it's like it absolutely should be just as much of a priority as murder. Right. I mean, that, the idea that that, that that has somehow, you know, that the the way people look at it is like it's a lesser crime. Right. Or, or that it's less than anything. That's kind of the cool part about this story really coming to the fore so much is like people hearing 50 rapes in the 70s. Yeah. And I think it's that, you know, it's like it was a time where it was – Okay, it's calm down. It's not that big of a right, deal. Right, get on with your life. Yeah. And think about how many, I mean, we still hear so much about how many sexual assaults are not reported. Right. Think about how many sexual reports were not reported back then. Yeah. Yeah. And the the police officers, and we've talked about this, certain police officers that don't, you know, are not good with sexual sexual assaults, especially back right. then. You right. Know, when they were being reported. Yeah, and there's no training. There was no, was no. the idea of sensitivity training was a joke. Right. And Victims yeah. rights advocates, no such fucking thing. Yeah. Um, also, that makes me think of the fact that it's, you know, the bone chilling reveal that he was a policeman in right. Auburn. Um, then you think, what if that fucking guy was the right. guy that came to your house after yeah. you were attacked? I mean, like, yeah. the, the, it it opens that door. It's just like horror after horror with this with this case. But like the idea that he was a person that that had a, that much authority and power as an Auburn policeman, and that he was living this double life is is once again this whole case is so cinematically dramatic yeah. and insane. It's almost too over the top. It's over the it's, top. Do you has is the a uh, strange wife uh, coming forward at all, or is she not speaking? Uh, she is not speaking now. To neither, anyone, or neither is Bonnie. To the cops, or I don't know if she's speaking detectives. to the cops or not. Yeah, um, we can we can talk about that when we get Paul. Is she our surprise there. guest? How yeah. great would that be? <laughs> well, you know, so yeah, no, we'll 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 yeah, we might as well call him now. But uh, you know. So I had the opportunity. He was going to come to CrimeCon anyway. Mm-hmm. We were doing, you know, CrimeCon is like Comic-Con for crime. It was in Nashville. <laughs> we were, uh, we had two, um, so, you know, presentations about the Golden State Killer, which we had to completely tear up and <laughs> right. redo. Right. And I really wanted to, you know, and we moved. The first one was going to be just a deep dive into the evidence. And me and Paul Haynes were going to go through and we're going to do this and that. And we're going to say, like, you know, what about this piece of evidence? Now that's junk. And this looks like the best sketch and everything. So All obviously right. that went to hell. But it was going to be in a small room. They said, no, we got to move you into the bigger room. Yeah. So we go in, we look out. There's like 2,500 people Holy in this room. Shit. And... I wanted to give Paul his due, you know, because Paul didn't get to speak at the press conference. And it was just sort of leaking out that that he was the guy that really solved this thing. 
And Paul was, you know, Paul very much, you know, because we were all talking about the book and we were there because it was for Michelle's book. You know, Paul would say that she, he, he felt that Michelle was his partner. So, uh, you know, it made sense for him to come out. So we brought him out and it was like Beatlemania. <laughs> I love it. It was, it was like nothing you've ever seen. He gets a standing ovation and then after everybody is trying to take selfies with him and he can't, he can't walk five feet without somebody grabbing him. And, you know, it made me smile just because, and the reason why I was very upset that they didn't put him or put anybody else of the real investigators who were in the trenches at that press conference, they wouldn't put him on the screen is that, what I want to see is in true crime, when you work in true crime for so long, the biggest thing that comes to you is that there's so many supervillains. Yeah. We're yeah. surrounded by supervillains. Manson, Bundy, Gacy, Dahmer. Name the superheroes. And you can't. You know, you might say John Walsh or you might say, yeah. you know, this person or that person or maybe like a local policeman. But we don't put them out there. And you know, I was thinking about Paul. It's like if, if we're going to get a superhero out of any of this, it's going to be Paul. And Paul is going to be somebody that it, it, listen. If he's going to have the hot for holes hashtag, and he's going to be this, <laughs> and, he, and he's going to be this. I did not start that. Yes, by you the did way. not start the I hot for holes. I did not. Yes. No, I think I started it. <laughs> but if you, you know, if he's going to be a heartthrob, then so be it. Because what I want is I want a little kid to be watching the screen the way that they did back in the day when they would see Jack Webb or, or FBI guys up on the screen and say, I want to be like that guy. Yes, you exactly. Know? Or a little girl seeing, you know, Erica Hutchcraft or, or Carol Daly and being like, I want to be like her. Yeah. Right. And those are the heroes that we need to be pushing in front of the camera just because, you know, we have such this imbalance in this explosion that we've seen with true crime. And, you know, they're the kind of people that will take this, you know, ridiculous, funny hashtag power and use it for good. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And if it puts it out there and then, it, you know, this case and the legacy of this case is all about not only solving this case, but solving so many other cases. Totally. And we've already seen it. The floodgates are open. We've already seen cases are going down. And there's so many cases now that we can solve based on this one. And thank God it was a big one. Yeah. Because if it was if it was a smaller one or if it was a sort of nebulous one, you might get people saying, oh, you know, and we had that a little bit where people were saying there's privacy laws, there's this or that. Yeah. But – you know, nobody is really defending this guy right. and defending, you know, someone that had at least 50 rapes and 12 murders. I want to talk about this. Should we bring out our yes, yes. special let's, let's surprise him, let's call him guest? Up. And that, you know what? Well, here, here's what I was thinking. You know, he he needs his he, – he, he is the superhero of this story. And we were going to have him on the phone, but – <laughs> Oh, no. No. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> What's about to that happen? That door is open. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Billy just no. went somewhere. Billy stepped out. Oh. No. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> meet you. Hi, Karen. Hi. Nice to meet you. Paul Holes is in the building, everyone. Paul Holes is hugging Karen. He's in the building. <laughs> Uh, I thought Billy just walked off the podcast. I <laughs> thought he got pissed and was gone. Oh, my God, ladies and gentlemen, it's Paul Holes. Right. Hi. Hi, Georgia. Hi, Karen. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul Holes. Paul Holes, Billy, thanks for uh, for. You're doing welcome. I'm driving up to Sacramento, hitting him on his head, putting him in my trunk, driving back down. It was a long night. But he's here. Uh, 
Oh my god. This is a surprise to Karen. I knew it was happening, but I'm still You knew it was happening. Oh yeah. Oh I ran it through. I <laughs> oh, made yeah. sure I ran it through Georgia. <laughs> I said I texted her, I said, um, does she like surprises? <laughs> and I was like, no, she, no, she fucking hates surprises. Okay, can I just say this in my own defense, Paul Holes? <laughs> Um, first of all, I don't know if you heard that, but I did not start the Hot for Holes hashtag. That was not me. <laughs> no. It's not my style. No. But as we were just saying, um, I think that a lot of this excitement, and we were just talking about like crime con and stuff, I think a lot of this excitement is kind of like an overly simplistic way of kind of giving you like a ticker tape parade in a way that you can't do anymore. Uh-huh. It's like we're doing it social media style. We're doing it murderino style. But like... You know, you were the lighthouse keeper for decades on a case that that should have or, you know, what, for whatever reason, ended up not getting solved for so long and was so horrible. And like we've talked about it, like watching you talk about it on that ID special where, you know, every single fact, you know, every single path. Like and you, you're, you seem as passionate as us. You're not detached from it. And you give, like, Michelle, who is, you know, one of us, so much credit, which is, means so much to us. Well, and, like, when the cameras weren't on, when she first came to you, you welcomed her with open arms. Right. I mean, you just could not have done it better. So I think there's a lot of this is stupid. Like, <laughs> it's very stupid <laughs> and incredibly yeah, embarrassing. It's, it's funny and silly and fun way of... It just saying yeah. it's just a humongous thank you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's been... It's been just a surreal experience. Yeah, tell us I about bet. this experience. What's it been like? <laughs> well, after the press conference when D'Angelo was announced, um, you know, I, I had with Jane Carson and Debbie Domingo, they had convinced me to go to CrimeCon about a month prior. Hmm. And so uh, as we were marching down with D'Angelo, I didn't think there was any way I'd be able to make it out to Nashville. I had no idea what I was walking into. <laughs> and, and it was great. But my first, uh, I, I guess, experience was I was walking in the hallway. And it was late at night on a Thursday evening. And this mother and daughter passed me by. Didn't pay any attention to them. And all of a sudden, I hear this, Paul. <laughs> and I look around. And they're looking at me. And that's the first time I've ever been recognized by somebody I have no idea who yeah. they are. Um, and then for the course of the next two days, it was amazing in terms of all these murderinos coming up to me and getting pictures. Um, I didn't have a Twitter account, but my, <laughs> right. you know, my, my wife's friends were all of a sudden saying, hey, Paul's getting pictures of all these women. Where is he at? What is <laughs> Wait, going yes. on? Can we talk about oh, that God. for one second? Yeah. Because sure. first of all, uh, the sincerest of apologies to Mrs. Holes. Um, <laughs> all of this is so out of control. Is she? Does she like it? Is she pissed? Like, is it? Oh no, she she's been a great sport about it. Okay, good. You know, she's the one that's actually watching and letting me know because I <laughs> yeah. I'm so f- afraid to go on and Google myself because I don't want to see what exactly is out there. But she's she's <laughs> been great you, about you it. Don't. Uh-uh. Right. Take it from us. <laughs> but you know, at the same time, she didn't know what was going on at a crime con either. And then so I get the phone call. Yeah, she's going, what is going on out there? She didn't know you'd have fangirls. So many. Well, it's so many and women. guys. Yeah. yeah. Right. But it's like 90% yeah. women. And, and also 90% women who have been watching you 
be a talking head on these shows for years. Yeah. You know? Well, We've seen the screen grabs from <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. I, I'm learning that what gets out there on the internet stays out there forever. Uh-huh. It's forever. It's forever. It is. It's horrifying. It is. Um, and then th- since I've gotten a Twitter account, it's been one of those things <laughs> where I've, I've, I've probably posted a couple things going, oh, what did I just yeah. do? <laughs> you can never delete it. That's just it. Um, so wait, yeah. at cri- then at CrimeCon, because we had a couple friends who were there that was the most exciting thing. I was like, the, uh, my friend Katie Reif, who's a reporter for the AV Club, was there. And I was like, you need to tell me every single thing that happens because she was in the room, too. Yeah. And she was just like, the whole room just went insane. And then I got the report from Billy also when it was over. So but it was exciting. like, it was because I was I just wanted it to be what we thought it you deserved. What we, and what we wanted to see at the news conference. Yes. At the, um, what's it called? Press, press, press conference. conference. We, we wanted to see, which is like, you guys! Yeah. <laughs> which I know isn't professional, but yeah. in the background, seeing you there, being like, you should just get up there. And Well, you know, at, at CrimeCon, when, when Billy pulled me out onto the stage, <laughs> that was such a humbling experience. Uh, and Yes, in many ways, I've been the face of the investigation, but really, I think everybody was applauding everybody that's been involved in the investigation. Uh, so that's that's the thing that needs to get out there is yeah. that there's there's you know men and women that are still actively investigating the case. They have been on this case for, in some instances, decades. And they aren't they don't have the opportunity I have in order to be able to come out and be a public figure at this point. So, you know, I think that applause, I mean, it, it was, it's sent like just chills yeah, up my spine yeah. when I got it. Cause I never thought I'd be, you know, in front of that many people in a standing ovation. But again, I think that was an ovation for the team. Absolutely. I'm going to say this right now, cause I'm sitting right next to him. <laughs> Paul has goosebumps right now. It's so exciting. <laughs> well, Sorry, Paul. Cause, yeah. cause as you both know, this and as they said in that press conference or whatever, but this doesn't happen that often. Yeah. So the idea that it has happened. We get to applaud the solving of a case. The that, trajectory right. all of it took, it was just like. It, Can you tell us, like, the phone call that you got that the DNA was a match? Can you? I bet that was insane. So that, that was, it was, um, I was out of state you know, shopping for a house because I'm in the process of moving out of California and at a restaurant at, at P.F. Chang's. Oh. And, <laughs> plug. But, that was a plug. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll make a lot of money off that. Thank you. Sesame chicken. Um, <laughs> oh. So had just finished eating and I, I get a call from uh, Lieutenant Kirk Campbell, who's one of the investigators from Sacramento DA's office. And I, I see that he's calling and we had had D'Angelo under surveillance. So I knew, okay, this call is an important phone call. So I go out, and uh, Kirk says, okay, you can't tell anybody <laughs> Except for this. Karen and Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said the, the, the initial DNA results, because we had gotten a surreptitious sample, SAC-SO had gotten a, a surreptitious sample from D'Angelo, came back, and though it's a, it's a low-level profile, which means it was not a complete DNA profile, but the lab is really excited with what they see. And, you know, I, with my background, I was saying, what exactly do they have? And once he told me, I knew it was a guy. 
And then I walk back in and we're getting our fortune cookies. And, oh my God. And my wife is opening up her fortune cookie and all excited about what it says. You know, I could care less about what the fortune cookie says. At and that you point. literally and truly can't tell your wife. Like you, tr- that's a secret. Wait, that you, you have can't to tell keep. your, come on. No, I, I, I told her, but, you know, <laughs> but she, she read it on my face. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, I'm I, sure. and I wasn't going to tell her in the restaurant because I knew what the reaction would be. And so I'm trying to not tell her uh-huh. and she knew who had called. And next thing you know, she's like, like pushing me out the restaurant, yeah. wanting to know what's going on. And you still owe that P.F. Chang $62. <laughs> We've got them. They're also the surprise guest, the manager from that P.F. Chang. Yeah, very well maybe. I love it. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of made-in products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Do you still, sorry, do you talk to Carol Daly or do you like... Carol Daly and I communicated, but believe it or not, we had not met or even communicated up until about a couple of months ago. Wow. So that was one of those things in this case where, I mean, she is somebody that deserves so much credit for the work she did with the victims up in Sacramento. And if you ever got to see her reports, 
It was cutting edge in terms of recording all the victimology, not only the circumstances of what happened, you know, what the offender did, what he said, which gave us insight into who this guy was, but also who the victims were. And that's very important when you're dealing with a fantasy-motivated type of crime. So she did an amazing job. And I always was like, wow, this this is an amazing woman in terms of what she was doing back in the 1970s. And then I finally got to talk to her on the phone once, you know, some of the media attention was coming out before we had even, you know, identified D'Angelo as being a person. Um, and then afterwards, I got to meet her in person for the first time. And that was a great experience. Yeah, she seems She's amazing. amazing. I just rewatched the ID special to do the before the arrest, after the arrest. What was it called? Wait, there's still more to tell. We don't know who it. What is it? Uh, it's Unanswered Questions. Yep, it's called Unanswered Questions, the Golden State Killer. Um, there's more to come. But I mean, it's really fascinating. The, the Like you're saying, the comprehensive job that she did, but also just like... She's just so on point at eat to this day. And and then back then when you see those pictures and you see the video of mm-hmm. her and like, like don't be polite. Her her don't be polite speech and all that stuff where you're just like this she must have been one of a handful of women in that yeah. Sacramento a, County a Sheriff's rare victim department. advocate. Not yeah. only that, just yeah. across the country. I yeah. mean, think about how many sexual assaults that had happened that didn't have a Carol Daly there. And totally. that's yeah. what, what what she was doing, like you said, was so groundbreaking. Well, and I believe she was the first female assigned to investigations for Sac Sheriff's Office. So, yes. you know, that she was was cutting edge. She blazed a trail. Yeah. Mm, the 70s sucked. Um, <laughs> it's very cool, though, like, yeah. that she is kind of like that one of those lights that comes up in this story, too. And, you know, I don't know. She should, we should hear from her more, yeah. I think. Um, that makes me, that makes me, can I ask a couple specific questions that you probably can't answer, Mr. Paul Holes, but you probably can, about the, um, speaking of her speaking at the town halls. Was he there at any of them? Do we know? You know, the um, (laughs) that is something that I think we're still trying to figure out. You know, Carol has a a memory of uh, one of the victims standing up and uh, speaking in front of the town hall. And he does, him and his wife do become victims later on. Now, her memory has somewhat changed over time, which you would expect after 40 years. So that is going to be one of those questions as to... Was he in the audience, saw this this man, mm-hmm. and decided, I will show you who I am. How dare you speak against what I am doing? Um, which I believe absolutely this offender would do. He's very vindictive. I mm-hmm. believe some of the cases that Im- involve males were selected based on who the males were and what they had done to him, either directly or indirectly. Uh, which ones of those victims? At this point, I don't know. Um, and he very well could be in other town hall meetings, but right now it's, it's speculation, but it does make sense with who he is. Do you think, uh, so, so does that mean that he might have actually known some of the victims as far as, I know you can't answer any of this. (laughs) Well, the reality is, is I don't know. And, And that's one of the big questions that I have is, you know, I always marching down and investigating this case, I truly felt that this the victim selection, he was multimodal. There are victims that he absolutely just followed home. Mm-hmm. There are victims that while he's out prowling a neighborhood, he right. stumbled across. He likes a certain neighborhood and picks absolutely. the right victim. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a neighborhood that is conducive to yeah. him. Yeah. And he had a lot of uh, potential spots. You can in choose each neighborhood. any neighborhood and find a victim. Right. And so, in many ways, he may have employed that strategy where he goes, 
I know how to get in. I know how to get out of this neighborhood. They're all single story houses. I don't have to worry about witnesses in the second you know, floor seeing me hopping fences. So Ugh. it's very possible. He could have just chosen a neighborhood and then found somebody that met his criteria and the opportunity presented itself. But I do think it is possible that he has had interaction with some of these victims uh, ahead of time, both females and males. And that was one of the things I was trying to do in particular, try to identify the males uh, to see if there was maybe a business setting or some other type of sporting activity right. that they could have inter interfaced with at some point. Yeah, I mean, even Jane says the story about how uh, during the attack, he said, you looked really good at the O Club. Right. And he didn't use the term officer's club. He said O oh. Club. And you had to be, she, she thought he was definitely in the military because whether he had seen her at the officer's club or not, but the fact that he used the term O Club meant that he was in the military. So she wondered if he may have seen her at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we did see, you know, this, uh, this offender was very much into trying to put the victims on edge. And he would look at the victims' lifestyles and make comments to try to make them think that uh, he had seen them or they knew him. In the San Ramon attack, he, he tells that uh, victim, I, I've seen you at the lake. Well, on her driveway was a boat. Right. And so it's, it's sort of one of those things. He's spried enough to go, okay, she's probably been to the lake at some point, and so I'm going to use that against her just to kind of you know, get her on edge. Well, and I, the, my, I was talking to my sister about it because my sister can't deal with any true crime anything, but she was asking me questions. And I'm like, okay, but I'll, I'll answer this for you, but then you're going to know. But she was saying it doesn't make sense why uh, the victims didn't call the police. And I'm like, okay, I'm about to tell you something you're not going to like and wait, it's going part? to keep you up. What, the way he would wait there and they, it would be dead silent. Right. He, they would think he was gone. They would move, and then he would threaten them again. Yeah. Like that idea. So then they would end up just laying there, like stock still, till the morning came. Because they like, didn't know if he was still there, so that he'd have hours of getaway. It's it's so like deviously brilliant in that way of keeping that time frame, so that he is has so much time to get as far away as he can. Absolutely. And, and in fact, in attack number 13 up in Sacramento, you have a mother and daughter laying side by side in the bed. And he was somebody that was able to move through the house silently. That's one of the yeah. things that the victims were commenting on. Um, and at a certain point, it's been quiet for a long time. And so the mother asks the daughter, are you okay? And the daughter responds, shh, mommy. And all of a sudden, he pushes down on the bed right next to the mother's head. That's what's so – I think that that is what is so – that draws us in about this case is what a – it wasn't just about rape for him. It was – and murder. It is so much more yeah. like of a head fuck. And, Absolutely. And just conniving and cunning and – Terrorizing. Ter terrifying. He's a, he's, a, he's a psychological sadist. So his big thing was the fear he was instilling in the victims – so when you read the actual sexual assaults, um, and they, they did vary. You know, Some of the sexual assaults were almost styled like a consensual type of interaction where he had obviously been fantasizing about that female. Then you have um, some of the sexual assaults were much more violent. But many of the victims were commenting in terms, especially later on in the East Area Rapist phase, he did not seem to be getting what he wanted from the sex. Hmm. And that's when you start to see this, you know, uh-oh, he's feeling internally he needs more. And then down in the first attack in Galita, Santa Barbara, when he's 
got them separated and bound, the two, the male and female victims. He's pacing back and forth saying, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him this time. I'm going to kill him. He obviously realized he had to take the next step to satisfy that inner compulsion. And then in all the Galita attacks, he fails because the victims fight back, right? So it is interesting in, in, in that, yes, you can make that, that argument. Uh-huh. Um, most certainly in the first two, which were within a, a few months of each other, right at the end of 1979, uh, with uh, w- he, what could have been a, a double homicide and, and the victims end up you know, running away from him and then he has to bail and then gets, you know, FBI agent chases him. Two months later with Dr. Offerman and Dr. Manning, Dr. Offerman slips his bindings and gets up and, and, and charges him and gets shot. He's killed and he goes over and shoots Dr. Manning. And then a year and a half later, he's back in, in, in basically the same area with uh, um, Sherry Domingo, Gregory Sanchez, and he gets into a physical fight with Gregory Sanchez. It doesn't go the way he wants, but he does leave DNA evidence in that scene. So he at least got to the point where he's leaving DNA evidence. Right. And was the Maggiore double shooting before all of those murders? That was in February 78. Yes, it was. Do you think it could have been because there is the talk that that was could have been a thing where maybe um, uh, the guy recognized him or there was some reason why he had to shoot that couple that maybe the it was accidental being forced to murder and then suddenly he's got a taste for murder in a way that he hasn't before? Well, I think when you look at the entirety of the series, because right now it really is looking like D'Angelo is also the Visalia Ransacker. Right. And you do have the homicide of Claude Snelling. Yep. Uh, so he oh, has yeah. a taste of, of, of murder at that point, uh, the Maggiore case. The predominant theory right now with Maggiore is Brian and Katie were out walking their dog, Brian being a military police officer uh, known to have an aggressive personality. They stumble across a guy that's out prowling, Mm. and Brian puts his cop hat on, confronts the guy, possibly chases the guy until the guy decides he's going to catch me and pulls a gun. Which he's done twice before. Besides the Snelling, didn't he shoot the... You have the Rodney Miller case. Right, mm-hmm. and the kid who chased him, and then the cop. And then I know a McGowan. lot of this <laughs> <It's> real, <laughs> We're about specifics on this show. Um, okay, yeah. So, you know, in, in that particular instance, it, it, it may have been, uh, even though it was most likely a defensive-type shooting, you know, he has power and control over those victims. He took their lives. He made that decision, and that's what this guy is all about. And I think also, and we know that he changed tactics again when somebody, you know, even though he didn't, uh, you know, he knew he almost got caught and then he, he moved, he moved areas. He didn't attack in that area again. He was very, almost one of his signatures was his, not only his ability to escape really, and his ability to, to know all the different escape routes, which leads you to believe that maybe one of those escape routes when he was walking around, when he was prowling, was whipping out his badge when he did have the badge oh. or whether he kept the badge and saying, oh, no, I'm just, you know, I'm a, I'm a police officer and using the police vernacular. You know, he knew all of these different ways. The reason why he chose that neighborhood is because he grew up not necessarily in that exact neighborhood, but he grew up near that neighborhood in, in Branch of Cordova. And he knew that, that you know, all of those escape routes, you know, and. I think that's very much – and when, when something went south for him, he would say, I've got to go someplace else. And one of the things that we were talking – I was talking about this with another investigator involved in the case who uh, we both know, but what, I won't mention his name because he doesn't like the spotlight. But he was saying how – you know, <clears throat> I was talking before about this other 
um, case that somebody had told me about. Um, uh, the son had told me about this. His mom and his mom very well might have been one of his victims, but it was early on in the case. And the investigator told me, you know, we've seen this guy at his best. We saw him when he got away with 50 rapes and 12 murders. We didn't see him in the minor leagues. We didn't see him when he was coming up and he was making mistakes, really. We don't really have that. And, you know, what he was doing or potentially doing before that, when he was even a teenager, what he was doing, you know, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to do is create that timeline to figure out, all right, did he ever go to summer camp? Did he ever go on a on a work trip or whatever? Uh, did he ever, in Korea, when he was visiting his dad, did he ever go off and say, you know, any furloughs that he might have had in the in the Navy, any of those uh, those deals? You know, what he might have done, you know, gone on vacation and said, I'm going for a walk. And then what did he do then? Yeah. He, uh, he, he, there's so much that's out there. And we really didn't know what he was doing before he really got it because he became an expert at doing what he was doing. He, he did, though. I would say Visalia, he was in the minor leagues. Uh, Visalia Ransacker was not a very good burglar, struggled to get inside houses, <laughs> even though he did get in many, many houses. Yeah. He was constantly being seen. Uh, by by neighbors, by victims. Um, and when you look at after that series stopped, six months later, now you have somebody who all of a sudden has more advanced skill sets being able to break inside houses. Nobody sees the East Area Rapist. And the East Area Rapist is now doing everything he can from getting from being seen even by the victims, by wearing a mask, shining flashlights in their eyes, even even with those precautions, he's telling the victims, don't look at me or I'll kill you. He recognized in Visalia, he made a mistake. He left a trail and he changed. He learned. And that's the evolution of D'Angelo. And he also changed so much that he was a cop in Exeter and he sees that, you know, I probably need to leave Exeter mm. because someone might recognize me. And then he goes up. He, maybe he saw that. You know, when we were doing the newspaper archive searches, you see the ad for, hey, Aubrey's looking for police police wow. officers. He sees that. He goes up there yes. and he decides, I'm going to go back to my hometown and do it. And was he, when he was a cop in Exeter, was he heavy like the Visalia Ransacker was? Like, that that was one thing that we talked about when we talked, we were had the book episode and we were, this was all pre uh pre-arrest but it truly looks like two different people the descriptions are completely different yeah and i know there was a lot of active rapists at that time unfortunately there so but there but it's almost like he did a kind of like a px90 thing like he did a makeover and like a workout thing where suddenly he's super agile and you saying he invented px90 (laughs) i'm saying saying, let's take a look look at that guy before we go any further no i mean if you take a look and i've actually got him right there uh you know how heavy his face was and that was always the the stumbling block that Mm. paul had and i had and michelle had and and paul haynes had was whether this guy who was being described as being kind of stocky with these heavy, heavy legs and this face that was like a baby's face, Mm -hmm. whether he could have been this kind of swimmer's body Spider-Man that's jumping over all this stuff uh, and made that switch, you know, just, you know, a couple of years later. And it turns out that he did. Right. And and I think he probably purposefully altered his physique because there was a composite of him in Visalia that was very good when he started looking on. So he had to change, but in order to continue doing what he wanted to do. Did we, so the homework evidence, was that red herring? 
I don't know right now. You know, I had high confidence that that, yeah. that, that was you, from you, him. You were really into that I homework I was evidence. really yeah. into that homework evidence. And at this point in time, my confidence has been shaken. However, based on what I saw inside D'Angelo's house. Oh, my God. You went in there. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go on. Yeah, I, I, do, I do think that there is still the possibility. The, the writing is very consistent with who this offender is. You know, that scrawled punishment. Punishment. You know how everyone writes that on their homework. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and really casual. Yeah. The, the mad is the word essay. That psychologically is so much with who it fits with who this offender is. I do believe and had said that I believed it was an old spiral that he had because mm. I, I, I'm, I'm fully confident D'Angelo is a guy that was out there taking notes as he's prowling. We have two pens that were dropped up in Sacramento. So I do think he had an old spiral with him. Where I'm a little bit stumped right now is the diagram. Because, you know, I did a lot of work on that diagram. I had people saying, this is a guy that is familiar with the development industry. Looks like he's a practitioner using industry-specific symbols. And right now at D'Angelo, he's a cop. Yeah. You know? And then some kind of just blue... Yeah, I'm with you, Paul Holes, on the uh, that whole thing because the, when you first the night of the arrest, when you sent us the um, that old article that you'd found where it said in high school he'd worked for a winch and a crane, crane, crane hoisting company, yes. and I in my mind I was like he was the guy that went out there and pulled the trees out before they before right. they paved out all of these um, housing complexes. Like it made perfect it's sense communities. to me. And yeah. it, it's still a planned community drawing. It, it is. Um, I do believe when you look at in the military where he did receive carpentry training so he understands how to frame houses um once i don't know what kinds of classes he took at sierra college or sac state but it's going to be more than just criminal justice because you do take additional courses and they have courses of drafting landscape architecture so maybe this was just an exercise that he did however um it's also possible that I had a, a guy online who's been 45 years in law enforcement. He said, you know, back in the day, we weren't paid very good. Mm. We often took second jobs, yeah. and often those second jobs were security guards on job sites. Yeah. And that resonates with me based on the pattern that I saw with at one, uh, within Sacramento a little bit. Once he moves outside of Sacramento, you see a prevalence of attacks occurring either in or immediately adjacent to active construction. Right. So I could see where maybe that's what he's doing, and that's what's pulling him out all over Northern California because he's making he's he's moonlighting, and while he's out in San Jose, he's taking the opportunity to attack. Well, and Dana point too, he he got into a gated community. Getting into that community wouldn't have been very hard, but you look at that community; they had you know security guards at the gates, they had roving security guards, so it's a higher risk attack. So he is choosing. To go there versus maybe going to where someplace it's not hmm. so high risk. So that's something that I look at right. going, you know, maybe there's there's a reason he's drawing to Harrington um, more so because he could have chosen a different neighborhood. Totally. Uh, was there anything when you were I can't believe you were in that house what I would fucking pay <laughs> just as an estate sale fanatic alone. And well, it, and also just little things like the fact that he took so many yeah. trophies and that they were, you know, just anything with initials on it. It's yeah. just like all that stuff that it's just so weird to be on this side of uh-huh. this part of the story where for so long, like Michelle and those cufflinks, for so long, yeah. people have been taking these tiny things and just trying to do whatever they can with 
tiny bits of information and now there's housefuls of information and was there anything in the house and i know you can't give us specifics that made you kind of do a happy dance or gave you chills or gave you any kind of feeling Hmm. yeah the i think the most the 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 thing that i observed that was that left the biggest impression on me and this probably isn't very well known in the series but one of the um aspects that the Easter rapist would do is when he would take the female out and typically it was the family room to separate her from the husband and lay her down and she's bound. He would turn the TV on and he would keep the sound off and then put a towel over the TV so he'd have this glow so he could see her, right? Walk into D'Angelo's room Uh and he has a computer there and he's got a (gasps) towel over the monitor. And I'm looking at that going, well, is that just a dust cover? Or is he reminiscing? Yeah, no one does that. He wants a glow. Yeah. You know, it's is he pulling out any of those souvenirs and replicating the glowing environment? Oh my god! From back in the 1970s, so that's that was something that struck me. And then he likes peanut butter. He's eating peanut butter off a spoon, <laughs> and, and that's what I do. So <laughs> he's still I, I a human. That. Yes, he's still a human. Yes. Do you think he is going to talk or explain any of this? I I really don't think so. You know, before he was identified, I I judged this offender as being all about self-preservation. He didn't want to get caught. He has never demonstrated the Zodiac or BTK ego of wanting to mm-hmm. say, hey, look at me. Yeah. Um, and so I felt that if he was caught, he's not going to sit there and, and self-incriminate. After seeing how he responded during the first, you know, I watched seven hours worth of the interviews, um, and I just don't see him talking. Uh, But you you never know. He may have a a change of heart at some point. Is he speaking to his family, his daughters? I I can't comment on that. Are they okay, those poor girls? I know, it's so horrible. Uh, that they, I mean, it tore my heart seeing the two, the, the two youngest daughters there. Um, and I, I said this at CrimeCon. In my opinion, those two, actually all three of the daughters are really his last victims. Yeah. They're suffering yeah. now from what he did. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that, that <laughs> and this is a story that, I don't know if you told it at CrimeCon, but you told it to me, was... The I think it was maybe the night or or a couple nights before you retired when you were outside of his house, right? And you were thinking about <laughs> getting the movie? swab. Can you can you walk us through that? This because... is one more movie like aspect yeah. of the story. <laughs> of course, that... you're retiring in a couple yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a... well, that's the you... thing. It's just, you retire in a couple days. You know, your partner Michelle, you know, died in his <laughs> sleeps tragically two years ago, and you're retiring in a couple days, and you've got one last suspect to check out, and you're right outside of his house, and you're wondering. You know what? I'd really like to just go in and get a swab. And what was going through your mind? And and at any point, did you say I'm too old for this shit? Because that would be the most cinematic thing uh-huh. that you could possibly. Can do. your partner be a dog? Yeah, like a lab. That would be great. Or a child. Yeah. No, you know it, that. Um, in leading up, you know, we had uh, kind of we had about a, I would say four to five males from the genealogy search that caught our interest because they had California connections. And then two that had Sacramento connections, one through extended family and then D'Angelo. Um, after we were able to eliminate the, the one, and it was marching down on D'Angelo saying, well, let's, what's, what's about this guy? You know, on paper, 
uh, you start finding out, you know, his connection to Sacramento was, you know, fa- he had some family attending uh, school in Rancho Cordova. He was a Folsom High School student in the 60s. Uh, Auburn PD, you know, I, I kind of did not like that. I, I was going, ah, up in Auburn, and how's he doing all these attacks? But it wasn't until I spoke with his, the boss that fired him from Auburn, uh, the chief, and the chief is relaying some of the behaviors that uh, he experienced and observed. And, of course, we've got the engagement to Bonnie in 1970. And we have our offender you know, making the statement, I hate you, Bonnie, I hate you, Bonnie, in one of the Davis attacks. There was enough churn that it was, I need to see where this guy lives. Had you seen the story about the shoplifting? Yes. You did? Yes. So this – the timing of me driving up to his house was my last day before I literally turned in my badge and gun. Ridiculous. And I uh, was sitting there going, well, I need to go see. That's what I always do is now once I've identified somebody, I just need to start looking at them. Um, and so I, I drive up from Martinez, which is in the Bay Area, up to Citrus Heights. And that's about an hour and a half drive. Uh, I get up there and I just park in front of his house. And you have to understand, at this point, it wasn't, this is the guy. He was just starting to get interesting. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking, and there's a car parked in the driveway, and I'm looking to see if there's any activity in the house. Uh, I don't see any activity, but I was pretty confident that he was there. And in in my position, it was just like, you know, this is my last day. Uh, what's the chances that this is actually the guy? You know, I, I should just go knock on the door, introduce myself like I've done time and time again, and just say, hey, I'm looking into an old case. Can, can we chat a little bit? And eventually establish a rapport and then ultimately ask, do you mind giving a DNA sample? <laughs> um, and I thought about it and with what I'd heard from the chief and the Bonnie and you know some of the other aspects about him, I said, I just don't know enough about him to do that yet. And that's when I decided to drive away. And this story initially got out when a local Bay Area news person was kind of asked me. I said, well, I really, really was gunning to solve this case before I retired, um, and I didn't. You know, but at least I can take solace in that I was within 50 feet of the guy I've been looking for for 24 years. You know, yeah. and that was, that was it. Did. And all of a sudden, it's this, you know, this big, oh, my God, he was right there right before. <laughs> and I wasn't feeling that type of you know, uh, thing at all. In fact, uh, the local magazine uh, writer that wrote an article on me, you know, he emailed me after that story got out. It was like, oh, that's like Jodie Foster going into yeah. Buffalo oh, yeah. Bill's house in Silence Labs. It was like, no, I wasn't feeling that at all. I was just kind of going, oh, well, I yeah. guess I better drive off now, here, you know? You know, when I told that story to Pete Headley, who we've we've both talked yes. to and, and uh, yes. who I'm working with on that Allenstown 4 case and, and chasing another serial killer that I'm that I'm putting a, a Rasmus in, this other serial killer who I'm putting a, another timeline for and figure out where he's been, he said – that makes me so happy that he didn't go in that oh, house. Oh, yeah. He yeah. just said, I'm so happy he didn't go in that house. It, you know, in, in retrospect, when when you learn about who D'Angelo is, you know, the, during surveillance, he was the, – the, the guys watching him were saying, this guy is not moving around like a 72-year-old man. He's like a 50-year-old man like me. You know, he's, he's moving around. He's on his motorcycle. He's <laughs> high rates of speed on his motorcycle on the freeway. The way he drives, he, I mean, stop signs are optional. Uh, puttering around the house, in the yard, he's basically just showing that he's a physically capable individual. And we knew that he had lots of guns registered mm-hmm. to him. And, of course, he had both the military and law enforcement training when it comes to firearms. 
the front of his house, that front door is in a what? A, it's a it's a funnel of death. It, it really is a kind of enclosed area that you have to walk through in order to get that front door. So in retrospect, me knocking there, and I'd been on TV enough, we could have looked through a people or a window and seen, oh, I know who that is, and he could have gotten a gun, and things could have been very bad. Do you think that he watched and he kept up on the news of his own? I absolutely think that. Wow. Yes. You know, and also I think what would have been so disappointing if he, let's say he hadn't killed you, but if he'd killed himself, it would have, you know, to, to that last the last couple of days, so being so close, and he's onto it, yeah. and kills himself. Yeah, and and that's that was part of the concern. Right. Is you know, I could have contacted him. It could have been suicide. Uh, it could have been violence between him and me. Exactly. It yeah. could have been he flees. You right. know, or he takes hostages. You know, it, it, lots of things could have gone bad. So. Whatever made me drive away, you know, that instinct, that intuition, you know, thank God I, yeah. I, I followed that. It's because you're Paul Holes, <laughs> American <laughs> goddamn hero. That's why. So speaking of DNA, so <laughs> which part that you're not Paul Holes? You already did it. It's too late. You're on the record. Can we talk about, so now everyone, can you tell us, everyone's talking about the DNA uh, aspect of it and how it's uh, unfair and all this bullshit and unconstitutional. How close of a match can you find based off of someone else's DNA that they turn into a website? I mean, he For, wasn't... From the genealogy side? Yeah. Well, when you do that kind of search, of course you're hoping to find somebody as close as possible. Right. And, and that makes things easy. If you find a sibling or a first cousin, it's very, very easy to identify, you know, the the offender from, from that. When you start getting out to the second cousin, it's a very doable thing, but it takes a little bit more effort. Third cousin, it's doable like what we had, but it's four months worth of very, very hard oh, wow, that, work. That's what it ended up being as third cousin. It, and... we, we were dealing predominantly with third cousins. Wow. Uh, we ended up getting somebody who was on the order of a second cousin at one point. And that was one of the, you know, the turning points in terms of getting us into the right branch. Um, but the thing that I keep telling people is, of course, there's a stigma. Law enforcement is is got our DNA or accessing our DNA. I can't see that person the, the, up in the genealogy websites, those people's DNA profile. I can't download those profiles. You know, For me to see their genetic information, I have to be able to do that. The websites don't allow that, and I don't care about that. All I'm looking for is how much DNA these people share with my offender's DNA. And then those people I know aren't my person of right. interest, right? They're, they're, they don't even know who this guy is. I mean, do you know who your second cousins are? You know who your third they're, cousins yeah, are. Yeah, they're kind of pushy, but it's <laughs> <laughs> a bad example. You know, it's 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 you know, it, you're starting to get too far away right. in the family for people to really know who they are. But they're a starting data point, and when you have multiple starting data points that you can track back in time and find a commonality, then you have something to work with. So your offender is likely a descendant from there. This might sound stupid, but then do you reach out to those second and third cousins and kind of get a no family to. treat? No, you don't even need that. No reason to. It's traditional genealogy work that you do online. Okay. It's very easy. And, and there's, there's other things. But when you start getting down into people that are alive today, you know, the genealogy websites anonymize that automatically. But us in law enforcement, that's what we excel at is identifying those people. And so when we get down into the people that are born that are still alive, then we resort to traditional law enforcement investigations, accessing the databases that we can access to identify who they are and start evaluating them 
are they people that we should consider? And then eventually, at some point, you start going, well, maybe this person I need to get some DNA from just to help see it. Am I close enough? Or have I stepped further away? Yeah, because I think there's a lot of people who are trying to frame it. And I think they were probably trying to do that, too, because it's a story. It's just another yeah. angle on – it's a story on a story. But it, uh, like when you were on The Daily, that New York Times podcast, and that guy was kind of tr- – he was kind of – seemed like he was trying to hammer you on that or whatever. And then you were like, yeah, but also your aunt could call you in just directly to the police department and say, take a look at my nephew. He seems suspicious. And then we're on to you that way. Like right. you're just picking and choosing – why you don't like the way we find the person. Mm. In, in many ways. And, and people are concerned, you know, the, I've, I've heard the term, well, you know, ex, an extended family member is basically being used as a genetic witness against me. I have no control over that person putting their DNA up in the system and I have a common shared DNA with them. And I can kind of understand that, but you have to understand what really happens in all these investigations. As you said, we get tips typically from, from ex-wives, ex-girlfriends are going, I didn't like him. I think he's a Golden State killer. Yeah. Sometimes they really believe it, and sometimes they just want to throw their ex under the bus and be, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, let's have law enforcement rain down on his head. In many ways, I, I've likened this to a form of swatting, you know, that, that thing mm. where they call up and say there's hostage at this house. Next yeah. thing you know, you have a SWAT team going in. <laughs> it, it, people do do that. Um, so it, at least with the DNA, there is, there's a, a, it's a precision tool and by we contacted once we started this particular aspect of the genealogy using the autosomal DNA and the GED match, we contacted one person and got DNA from that person, and she was very, very uh, helpful. Um, that saved hundreds of people who the public had called in from us going and knocking on their doors and having that fear of all of a sudden law enforcement is investigating them and then asking them for their DNA sample. So in many ways, it was better for those people's privacy because they weren't being invaded. And their pot stashes. (laughs) And not to mention the the tax dollars that are being wasted (laughs) by the time that would have been spent getting those hundreds. Well, and and, and I've pointed this out, you know, for 44 years – with more resources than any other law enforcement investigation that I can think of, uh, we were we did not solve this case. Mm-hmm. Once we started this process with five people plus two outside experts, it took us four months. So it really shows the power of the technology. And then since that, we've seen a double homicide up in Washington be solved. And yeah. I, I fully expect to see additional cases start no, to fall. The, the dominoes are all falling. And there's so many. It, I think this is the biggest single, since DNA was actually used in a criminal case, this is the next biggest break in terms of solving cold cases is using familial DNA. And it's going to be a matter of resources. We were talking about this before that there's, you know, all of the rape kits that are out there and how many of those people did evolve into murderers or did evolve into serial rapists. And it's going to be a matter of, and I've spoken about this on the show right after the press conference, is that, you know, they're going to need genealogists. They're going to need volunteers. They're going to need, you know, not everybody had the resources that you had and you were able to have those resources, but the small police departments and the thousands of police departments that we have across the country, and there is... A group of people right now, all of the baby boomers who have a ton of experience and are, and it's the it's the most educated and most skilled workforce that we've ever seen retiring. 
there really is a chance right now to utilize that those people as well as the Gen Xers and also the millennials who want to do want a hobby with purpose and you know deputize them in a in a meaningful way uh, using liaisons and stuff that's what I've been doing and actually after my after I said that on the podcast, I won't mention the state, but somebody called me from the legislation of a state and said, I want to do this. <gasps> wow. So that might that might actually happen. That's so in exciting. State. Yeah. Well, so. It, does, it does seem like, and you know, and more credit to you, Paul Holes, but like it is that thing of the uh, police that open their arms to talking to, uh, you know, writers, journalists, or just the the online investigators or whatever, where that idea that it's to pull the information and to pull what the information you can pull, it, it can only benefit, right? If more people are working on something. Or is that not right? No, very much so. Now, there, there's, there's pros and cons. And, and obviously, like my partnership with Michelle was very much a positive experience. And, and, and you know, we, I would say it was symbiotic. We were able to just help each other. And it was a truly a public-private partnership. Um, and the, the, the online sleuthing community, there's a lot of very bright and capable people out there uh, that have uh, – capabilities that far exceed mine in certain ways or expertise that lends itself to being able to provide information. Um, but what you do see, though, is you have the other side. Uh, and the other side is what weighs down the investigation, because now you have these people that are calling in tips that have no nexus. Mm. Um, they get very belligerent. In fact, they start looking at me as their private investigator. Mm. Um, and I was like, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> you there, know? Needs, there needs to be a code of conduct. There needs to be a, a filter, a filter that everything goes through. And you, you, you know, and I've actually, I'm actually writing this code of conduct up right now. And one of the things is after the biggest thing, which is don't name names in public. Yeah. Don't say, hey, this is the guy. Is this the guy? Hey, I think this uh, is the guy. You, you can never, never do, do it. That. <laughs> which is what, which is what you saw in the Boston bombing, which set crowdsourcing back years. The the second thing after that is be safe. And the third thing is that, you know, you have to have that kind of, you know, code of conduct. You can't just um, go off. And especially if you're dealing with victims' families. Right. Yeah. You you have to to just maintain a positive outlook and not just, you know, crap all over anybody. And you're not going to get credit. A lot of times you're not going to get credit. And there's a lot of people, oh, I found this guy, found this guy. You just have to say, listen, if you're working with the victims – Families, the victims' families know, but it's going to be few and far between that a police officer or a detective is going to go and say this. W-, and I've had it happen myself, and I was amazed when they did it, and they invited me to the press conference for something that I helped solve. It very rarely happens, you know. It's like yeah. I think it's happened maybe twenty percent of the ones that I've been able to help with. So, you know, you're not always going to get that, but um, you know, you the, need that code. The, the, yeah, and then that that would be helpful as long as it's they abide by it yeah, of course. but there's also kind of a, having a respect that there are going to be aspects of the investigation that have to be closed mm-hmm. uh, and that is very very real and, and some people have a hard time understanding that mm-hmm. um, those of us that have experienced this over the decades realize that there are people out there you know for example um, there are people that will confess to these types of crimes, and they have no involvement. And that's one of the reasons, you know, if we don't have a case that has such strong DNA evidence and we have to rely on the circumstances of how that crime was committed, there's going to be details that have to be held back from the public. Otherwise, we're going to have these people coming in and just 
confessing and you know laying out how it happened because they read about it in the newspaper. And we can't really sort them out from the actual guy that did it. How do you decide what of those, you know, what what of that evidence to keep behind and what of it would be helpful for the public to know to help solve it or it's, to, to, right. it's it's case by case you know and most certainly it's 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 assessing what only the offender would know right and that's what we would hold back um, there's also things that we hold back just out of sensitivity to the, the mm. family you know because they don't want to necessarily hear the horrors that their family member went through right so you know there's there's lots of decisions that are made very and it has to be made very early on you know for example a coroner's report the medical examiner's report when all the information that's in there is technically public record so we have to recognize very early on at that point in time to, to seal that record or redact specific information out of that report that we do not want to let the public know about. Mm-hmm. That was actually one of the cool things, too, about the um, ID Channel special is how many victims spoke on camera, um, talked about their experience. Like, I think that that, that part of uh, the Golden State Killer uh, it, it's um, knowing how many victims there are and what a horrible time that was for it, so many people in Sacramento in the 70s. And then just to see these amazing women who were just like, well, it, this is what happened and walking you through it uh-huh. where it's like they were the victims of this crime, but they're also yeah. very strong women who are leading their lives and seeing them also at CrimeCon uh, with you guys. Jane, Jane and Margaret. Uh, just Jane and Margaret are just r- ridiculously amazing. It's and so Jane's, cool. Jane's sense of humor and coming up with quip after quip, you know, uh, of, of first, you know, with his small member and having, you know, the conversations about that, but also just, you know, wanting to hit him in the head with the roast that he had in the oven and all that. Oh, she's, God. She's, 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 she's so fantastic. Are there any cases that Billy would want people to focus on now that this one is off of our, our web sleuth plates? Yeah, look up Allenstown 4. Uh, that's the one that I'm you know as far as like the and i was actually working on the allenstown four case right when i learned that michelle died i had just gotten back from uh being in the woods and working walking that area when i was in a bar and found out that she had passed so i kind of linked these two and these two are actually kind of linked in a weird way too because paul paul um knew about that case and had talked to some of the same investigators about dna way back in the day about that uh well the the interesting thing i didn't know about the allenstown four case at all uh billy brought that to my attention a few years ago um, uh, when we first met at Michelle's uh, memorial. Uh, And so I kind of looked at that online and said, that looks like a very interesting case. I had a case uh, that I went out on uh, in 2002, a homicide of an Asian female. And uh, it turns out that that guy, Larry Vanner, who killed his live-in girlfriend, um, who we could not, we couldn't identify Larry. We didn't know who he was. And he had abandoned a child back in 1986. I've been reading about this one. Lisa Jensen. And we were sure once we determined he was not the biological father of Lisa, that we thought that she was an abducted child from somewhere. And using traditional law enforcement methods, we could never identify who Lisa was. And I just happened to get into a conference call February of 2017 with Peter Headley from San Bernardino Mm -hmm. and a captain from... 
uh, my sheriff's office, who was the lead investigator on the 2002 homicide. And that's when I first found out that Lisa Jensen had been identified as Don Bodin, a missing girl out of Canada. And eventually, that ended up linking this 2002 case out of Contra Costa County to the Allenstown case out of New Hampshire that Billy had told me about, but I couldn't tell Billy <laughs> at that point in time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. But and the crazy thing about that case is, is that we still... I could never still, be a cop. I could never be a cop. We still, you know, the, the girls in the barrels, which is a woman and, and three females, we still don't know their identities, right. but we know who killed them, which you very rarely happens. You know, it's always the other way around. So that's the case that I'm very deep into right now. And... Um, uh, working on a special on and also you know it's going to be in my book at some point but it's there's so many crazy twists and turns and we talk about this guy being you know we talk about uh, the Golden State Killer and being so evil I really think Rasmussen slash Bob Evans slash Larry Vanner he had a tons of different names was even more evil because his MO was this he would sidle up to a woman who had kids he would take that woman sort of away from her family and move her away and then he would molest the kids, uh, kill the woman, and then use those kids to attract another woman that he's mm-hmm. like this poor uh, single father. Once he got that other woman with other kids, he would kill the kids that he got the, with the other one once they were ready to talk Jesus. and then start that whole cycle all over again. And he did this a lot. And we're still trying to figure out where else he's been. So it's right now I'm delving into these two backgrounds of these guys that – weren't necessarily super nice guys. The, d- the difference is is that one of them is dead, and he liked to talk a lot because he really was a master manipulator, this guy Rasmussen. You can look up his the, the stuff that, you know, his interrogations, and he really thinks he's going to get out of it, whereas D'Angelo is a completely different cat, and he's just, you know, obviously spending seven hours just staring at the wall. Yep. Do you, uh, yeah. do you think that's because he's a cop, too? Like, he's already seen what can happen if you start talking? No question about it. You know, the law enforcement training is is most certainly, you know, he's been on the other side talking to suspects. He understands how, what it means to incriminate yourself with statements. Yeah. And he was married to an attorney. Oh, right. So, yeah. you Do you think know. it'll go to trial? Do you think he'll have the balls to go to trial on this? I, I think it will eventually yeah. go to trial, but don't expect that trial to happen anytime soon. I I think the trial is probably going to be five years or yeah. more out. Mm-hmm. These cases, I mean, it takes a long time to get a case, especially of this magnitude, to trial. Yeah, and he's he's looking for an escape route yes. again. Yeah, you know? so if he's going to do everything in his power to either potentially go, you know, have spend time in a hospital as opposed to spend t- spending time in a prison or a jail. And just do anything he can in terms of, all right, we're going to try to do delays and delays and delays. Yep. How much did it piss you off when you saw him in a wheelchair in the courtroom? Oh, yeah, yeah that, that was just a bunch of BS. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's where, in many ways, you know, here he is. He's trying to portray himself as a Golden State killer back in the day as this, you know, just this uh, master criminal mind. And then he's doing this wimpy wheelchair thing. At this point, he just needs to man up. Mm -hmm. He needs to basically take accountability for these crimes, tell us everything. Um, if he wants, if he wants any type of, uh, recognition, so to speak, do the, like the BTK did, just stand up there and Mm -hmm. say, I did this. This is how I did it. This is who I self identify as. Um, and unfortunately, right now, he's he's taking the cowardly way out. Totally. 
Um, you, sorry, go ahead. No, I just I was thinking maybe it part of that and the difficulty of that is that judge recently deciding that they can publicly talk about the size of his penis, which <laughs> I'm sure it is has a lot to do with all of it, all of it, really, yeah. don't you think, at the end of the day? Yeah. Like, there's the part of the rage and part of the, all that stuff. I just think it's like there's a real humiliation level that's not just he got caught. Right. Right. It, it, that's possible, maybe. Yeah, definitely. It's so frustrating. Well, it's not only they talk about it, they actually can take a picture of it. Right. And they have. Yeah. You know, we've got the GSK dick pic. It's there. <laughs> And we'll be putting it up on the Instagram, my favorite murder Instagram account. There's a brand new hashtag waiting to happen. You were talking about the single sock, Billy? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So this week, I don't know how early you guys are going to get this on, but NICMEC, which is (laughs) National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they do Rock One Sock, which is to raise awareness for all of the missing children that are out there. So I'm going to be asking everybody in this room to be taking off one shoe and one sock and rocking one sock uh, and we'll take pictures of it and put it up on um, on social media but you know Nick Mac is great they're they're a, a fantastic organization and they do a lot with them and it really is it's the clearinghouse for finding missing children and I actually was at Nick Mac right before the, the day before uh, I went up to Allenstown which um, the day before I, I found out about Michelle I was actually interviewing I was at Nick Mac interviewing the guy that had done the the um, the facial reconstructions of the four victims in the barrels, oh, and wow. uh, it was fascinating. And he was turning turning the heads around on the on the screen, and then just showing. And you saw this giant hole in the, mm. in the back of their heads. And this is what this guy did. He he, you know, took a rock or a, a brick, and then just did this to these three little girls and this woman. And that's his earmark. And that's what we've been looking for, me and Headley, across the country, and seeing other places that he did that. Because obviously that was his way of getting rid of somebody, was hitting them in the back of the head. And we found a couple. So, And, wow. so, and one of those little girls was his own daughter. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Which is, how, which is how they found him. So. Horrible. That's insane. Uh, Karen, you look shook when the sock thing. Yeah, we've been on uh, European tour for several weeks. <laughs> I haven't had – I don't remember the last time I had a pedicure. <laughs> I'm going to have to send mine in <laughs> after I go to the foot doctor. Like just the idea of that. Uh-huh. Um, well, I, yeah, I was going to. Well, I was going to. Yes, I, don't I, make me do this today. I, ke- I kept two secrets from you. It was that, and, and it was not. It was, it was having Paul actually here, so I understand if you're. This is like my humiliation one. birthday. Basically. Why do you hate me this much? I thought we were friends. Oh, I love you, Karen. <laughs> right under the bus. So unfair. I love it. Um, the one thing I did want to say, Paul Holes, is. When uh, when I was listening to the Daily at the very end of that interview, and he kind of weirdly abruptly ended it, where he suddenly was like, "Well, thanks for doing this interview." The way you said to him, "It was," I think you said it was great to be here, or it was great to talk to you, or something. The sound of your voice, and maybe this is just my—I think I can read your mind—but <laughs> it sounded like what you were saying is, "Thank God, this is the story I'm finally getting to tell." Like there was such a relief in your voice, and almost like a happiness. The way you said, like, it was great to be here. It was like such, it was just so, um, it was so exciting that this, that the story finally changed. Yeah, yeah. And I can't say that at that moment in time, that's what I was thinking. I don't remember. But it. it absolutely is great to be able to at least start talking about 
who the East Area Rapist, that's how I've known this guy. This was the East Area Rapist or the ear to me for decades before Michelle named him the Golden State Killer. To finally see who he was after all these years, to see that face that all I've seen in my mind when I read the case files is a masked man. So now I could see basically the mask has been taken off. So it is kind of very nice to get to this point. And as I've mentioned, I have a story to tell that's never been told. And now I have the opportunity to be able to tell it, and I'm working on that. And we heard that there's going to be an addendum to the, um, to I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Is that Am I allowed to say that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh. Yeah. That yep, there's yep, gonna... No, we're working on that. Yeah. <laughs> really? Because I've been telling everyone oh. across the globe. <laughs> well, because people have actually been bringing copies of the book to the meet and greets at our live shows. For us designer, we're like, we had nothing to do. <laughs> yeah, just to go like, you know, uh, well, and there's, I sent you the picture, but there were two murderers who were from France who just said, we, we brought you this because right. we figured you'd want to see it. The French version French of it, version, yeah. which of course I immediately started crying. I was like, yeah, I really did want to see this. Yeah. I didn't realize it, but um, but you know that just that there's there's now an ending, right. like that that yeah. that it and was there was something very sad and of course unsatisfying about how how it was. And going going through her notes and while we were putting the book together and finding that coda, finding the letter to the old man, and it was. Mm. It was amazing. You know, my jaw dropped when I first saw that. And I was just, and the way that she wrote it, and it really did play out exactly how she, totally she said. Did. So intense. And I, that was one of the first things that I thought about when I heard the news. I was like, I wonder if it was just like that, you know? And it turns out it was. But th- finding that, it was, it was almost like she knew. She knew yeah. that if something ever bad happened to her, this is how the book is going to end if we didn't catch him. And again, she just wanted him caught more than anything yeah. else. So. Yeah. Yeah, that'll it'll end there, and then we'll we'll tack something else on the end. It's very cool. And what's next for Paul Holes? <laughs> Are you going to go Hollywood, Do Paul Holes? Have- so I am, you know, of course I'm, I am going to write a book about my story. Um, I am exploring TV opportunities to see what what's there. You know, I've got many many cases that I've worked, and and one of the things, you know, I though GSK is my biggest case. I want to make sure people understand that I'm not just. GSK. That wasn't your only case? That wasn't my only yeah. case. You didn't just hold that one file on your desk for 30 years? Wait. You know, I, I will say for, for the better part of the last 10 years, I really tunnel visioned on that case, especially in the last two years. And uh, in, in some ways, you know, as Billy was the one that said, oh, you need to you know open a Twitter account. Mm-hmm. I have been like an incarcerated man. I have just been so tunnel visioned on the case that a whole world has kind of grown out there. And now that the case is behind me and I'm retired, I'm now. What is this? <laughs> go online. It's so, crazy. It's a nightmare. But, yes. but it's 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 very fun at the same time. Um, so you know, I am exploring things. I am helping other agencies out, nice. and it's not just the genealogy side. I bring other aspects of expertise that I can lend to a case. And You're a science dude, right? I have a science background. I have an investigative background. I have a behavioral background. And I think that's my strength is I can walk between those disciplines and be able to piece together stuff that maybe an investigator who doesn't understand the forensics and is looking at a report that's just a bunch of scientific gibberish, I can talk in that investigator's language and say, this is what you've got. This is the direction you need to go. Same thing if you have a profiler coming in. I can be able to help bridge these people that don't necessarily walk in each other's worlds. And so that's my strength. And that's what I'm hoping to be able to do and help other law enforcement agencies. Cut to the Paul Holes lifeguard show. 
We're just like, <laughs> what? Just what? <laughs> this can't be the show, Paul. I think on that note, what's a really important question is, are you going to take advantage of the, all the fucking puns you can use with your last name? <laughs> <laughs> if not, I will be very disappointed. Uh, you know, growing up with the last oh. name, the holes, I've <laughs> okay. heard it all. Sure. I've been referred to every body orifice. <laughs> not fair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you see some of the hashtags, and it's just the way it is. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, but it, it's all fun. Listen, it's I got good. hard fart. I understand. <laughs> yeah. People like to have fun. And, and and I think everybody, especially on Twitter, people just go a little crazy because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're just everybody's. I think for us, at least the newness of um, how how many true crime fans are out there, how passionate they are and how we've all basically, like I said, we've all been watching the same TV shows for 20 years. Mm-hmm. We've all, well, you know, I remember the episode of whatever the show was, Dateline or 2020, when they were like, the Eron's is the original Night Stalker, totally. you know, whatever, 2001, whenever yeah. that happened, like the, all those We've things. We've been telling people, about, I mean, I've been anecdotally telling people the story of how he uh, must have been at one of the town halls because of this thing without even really knowing what the case was for yeah. years. And right. it turns out it might not be true, but it's a great story to tell at parties. <laughs> well, it's amazing. And I, I, and I, and it, that the Golden State Killer is up there with, the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. So those stories fit, even if they're not totally accurate. That's how bad this guy yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, he really is that awful yeah. as a person. So, yeah, it's just uh, there's a whole there's a whole true crime world waiting for you, Paul Holes. Yeah. Well, I I hope to be able to walk into that world. And a, I'm, whole I am, world. Um, a whole new world. <laughs> down the rabbit holes. Because <laughs> yeah. me, me and Michelle used to always talk about, oh, I'm going down this rabbit hole. Uh-huh. Like, one of, like when we were doing, when we had uh, entered it into Y-Search, entered his DNA, when we only had a little bit of the markers, not as many as you had um, later on. But going down that rabbit hole of the uh, of that one name we won't mention yeah. and going through and going through like, you know, 18th century census reports from Holy Britain shit. and, and no. like, wonder, like three three weeks of that going like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. This is ridiculous. And thinking like, we can get them, but it was 10, you know, it was 10 generations ago and it just wasn't working. <laughs> do you call oh, up the, did you, do you call up the guy that you were sure it was and you were hounding and apologize to him? Um, well, there's been multiple guys okay. like that and I have gone and, and spoken with them, then they have no idea that I investigated them as a suspect. So it was, you know, in fact, one guy I spent a year on, and after I got his DNA surreptitiously and eliminated him, I spent three hours in his dining room talking to him because I thought he was close enough that maybe the East Area Rapist was somebody he knew. Wow. So wow. That's, that's, that, that was just part of the, the typical investigation. You march down this path, you get excited about somebody, you see all the circumstantial evidence, the DNA eliminates, and you're going... You should just arrest him. He probably did something wrong. Right? <laughs> well, that's, that's that's a show right there. <laughs> Other reasons to arrest someone, even though they're not the serial killer. Yeah. Really quick... Did they not let you talk at that press conference? Because is that a political thing? Is that that kind of like the DA speaks and then this person speaks and it it's a... Well, most certainly, you know, with the press conference, you do have the elected officials. They're coming up on their campaign cycle. So they're going to want to get that um, attention. Uh-huh. I had told uh, DA Anne-Marie Schubert uh, because we weren't, they did not want to get into the details about the genealogy at that press conference. The focus was on D'Angelo. 
I had gone up to her before and I said, you know what, if the press starts asking questions about the technical aspects, don't turn it over to me because then I'm going to be answering and then you are going to be answering questions about the genealogy side. So I did back away from being somebody who could have been up there at that podium. In fact, I had victims I had to go call and so I slipped out, you know, as it was dragging on and on in order to start calling these victims. Yeah. Okay, well, we still wanted you to be. <laughs> um, cool. This is amazing. This Thank you so, so much. Great. Thank you both for being here. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been my pleasure. And, you know, and one of the things that you said, you, t- you talked about Michelle's contribution to the Golden State Killer case, and absolutely she had a contribution. But you take a look at what you two are doing in the true crime space. You are bringing attention to these cases, and that is just as significant. So you are having a role. So understand that. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> well, we're definitely Thanks. having a good time. Yeah, and uh, we feel lucky to be involved any way we can with a thing that you know, as as all of us say, it used to make us feel weird to be so interested in stuff like this. Yeah, and it's, it used to be a thing that we all kept to ourselves. Um, and now it's you know there's like a it's a new day and everyone gets to go yeah I'm into that too I yeah. love that I know there, all about there's that more case. than enough unsolved murders out there <laughs> this was only you know uh, really a handful in the grand scheme of things there's 215,000 unsolved murders since 1980 in America and yeah. uh, you know you guys can can shine the light because you guys are the biggest superstars right now in in true crime that that true crime has seen in a while uh, really long time I mean you had. <laughs> You had John Walsh, and then you had Nancy Grace, but Nancy Grace is a very polarizing character. Oh. And you have you guys, and the fact that you know you've got three thousand people showing up at your at your events and mm-hmm. and going crazy, and and all of the Etsy stuff and all of the crafts and everything. I mean, it really is amazing. And I think that there's a lot of great that can be done from all the murderinos out there. Yeah, that's true. I think that's definitely happening because we we also constantly hear when we meet people at the meet and greet, people saying. Either they're going back to college to study right. forensics or they uh, are switching their majors. We, I, I mean, we hear things all the time and we're like, I'm like, I've just been reading Wikipedia pages. Yeah. I'm not. But it's people are so excited that they have this interest that they know they share mm-hmm. that's popular and interesting. And and I love the idea that there could be this wave of women getting into police work um, and really being, you know, the next Carol Daly so that that's. That isn't a, an odd thing. And yeah. that there is that – the female perspective, I think, is kind of crucial. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And, and I've, I've experienced that firsthand where you work a case and you're working it from a male perspective. And then the female is seeing it from a different side. Mm-hmm. And it definitely is an additive when you go, huh, you know, that is not how I perceive this at all. So that is very valuable. And there are a lot of amazing women in law enforcement today. Yeah, yeah, well, that's an incredible community, this this little Murderino community, yeah. and we're lucky to be part of and, it. And it also isn't just going back to school. There's it, it, It's voting. Remember that. If, if you don't want to do go back to school, if you've got a good job and you're just saying, all right, I just like reading about this, this stuff and listening to it, it's voting. And we need to get loud, and we need to get loud now. As, as much as we were getting loud and starting to get loud with the backlog and ending the backlog, we need to start getting loud on all of these even the the remains that are sitting in police lockers of people, we need to start figuring out who those people are, start figuring out not only running the rape kits, but then running them through familial DNA and solving these crimes. And that's going to be through 
the murderinos getting loud along with everybody else and just trying to make that stuff happen. Okay. Are yeah. there any uh, resources people can look into online to kind of find? I would say let's start with End the Backlog. Just do a search for End the Backlog okay. and you can find it. Mariska Hargate is doing great work there. Yeah, cool. we've talked about that a lot. Yeah. There's been le- the, the cool thing is sometimes murderinos will get together just to drink together yeah. and then they'll be like, we raised $250 for End the Backlog. They just like, yeah. it's very cool. It There's there Everybody's very proactive and um, and excited. Yeah. It's cool. Yay. Thanks, you guys. Thank you, guys. Wow, Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. Fuck. So, <laughs> this is so rad that we're going to do this. This is a show and its own fucking hooray. It's all one thing. That's right. Yeah. Steven. Wait, you have to say the thing. Oh, stay sexy. I forgot my line. Stay sexy. <laughs> Don't get murdered. Bye. Goodbye.